Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. How are you tonight, Lance? Doing well. How are you? Doing pretty well tonight. For this episode, we have our old pal John Smith back on to talk about the 13-year anniversary and the plans of what the group of people are going to do for the 13-year anniversary of Maura's disappearance. Yeah, there's a, uh, a little ceremony by the tree. Um, when I say little, I don't want to mean that it's insignificant, but it's a shorter ceremony by the tree uh, where the, the car was found. And then a, uh, uh, a longer um, memorial uh, and kind of what he did last time, like a public forum type uh, event at the VFW in Littleton. He gives all the details for that or as much detail as, as John Smith wants to give for that in the interview. Um, and it was fun to talk to him, uh, after, after a year, uh, from the 12 year anniversary to now, you can hear a little bit more, if you can believe it, a little bit more of an edge to him. Um, kind of like he's fed up. Like he just wants, he just wants this to, 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 you know, he doesn't, he's not thinking about the consequences to himself. This is a very concise interview that we do with him. He is very thorough with his investigation. So, we hope uh, you find what he's talking about interesting. It's it's it almost acts as a bit of a, a refresher, and we goes a little deeper into into certain topics too. Yeah, some interesting stuff about the case uh, as well after the uh, uh, housekeeping stuff about the 13 year anniversary vigils. So, without any more, let's roll the audio with John Smith. But first, we wanted to remind you to check out our fantastic new sponsor. It is Bloom That. Go to bloomthat.com slash missing for a great deal for Valentine's Day. It's been a little bit since we've had you on, so we're excited to uh, circle back with you. Well, I'm excited to be on, um, and hopefully we will talk about some stuff that will be interesting and intriguing to uh, the listeners. Let's start with the 13-year anniversary, which is rapidly approaching, of course, on February 9th, 2017. So, John, what's... What do you have planned, um, and, and what, what is the plan for the 13-year anniversary? About a month and a half ago, I uh, was lucky enough to take on a bunch of uh, local people to help uh, create this event uh, for the 13-year for the, uh, anniversary. Um, and these are all people from the local area who have been donating their time and everything to help get together a uh a small event at the tree on the ninth which um we have not publicized and we will not be publicizing um as far as uh, you know offering it to for a bunch of people to show up there just because it's 
you know, it's such a small area and there's not a lot of parking. So I don't know what could happen. You know, I don't want to have a hundred vehicles. There. So we should cut this part is what you're saying. Yeah. If you could at least just, you know, and that, that's fine. I mean, I just, you know, that, well, basically I'm sure there's going to be people that are going to be there on the night. I know that's going to happen. I'm not going to, I won't say the time that we're going to do it here. You guys know. I personally think we should keep it. Let, let, let's keep it. I'd like to see who listens and shows up because they listened. Well, I mean, I don't mind people showing up. I just don't. And I guess it's really not a big deal because they are shutting down the road. They are literally shutting down the road. So I guess, you know, if we've got a cop on both sides of us and, and a bunch of people show up, they're going to have to go to work as well besides just blocking the road, you know. So that's our, our, our plan for that is, is February 9th, about 3 o'clock. We're going to get together there at the tree. I will be doing just a, a, a short three-minute, two or three-minute just thing about what's happening for the past 13 years and what we've been doing. Uh, and then my friend Annie, um, who's been following the case forever as well, will be doing a, a short prayer. And at the end of that short prayer, we will be asking anybody in the crowd if they would like to speak or say anything. And if that happens, that does. If not, then we will be doing a balloon release of 13 balloons uh, for 13 years, uh, a mix of white and blue. And that's pretty much our, our um, event there at the tree for that day. What about on the 11th? On the 11th? Um, we're having an event at the VFW Hall in Littleton, New Hampshire, and that's located at 600 Cottage Street in Littleton. It's just off of Interstate 93, so it's pretty easy to find once you're off the interstate. It's about 30 seconds to the building. So that is uh, on February 11th from 2 till 8 p.m. That will include uh, a bunch of discussions by myself, Mark Harper and some of his people from MJA Investigations will be there as well. And we'll be, um, we'll definitely be having some food there, you know, some refreshments. And basically we're going to try and recreate, is my purpose, is to try and recreate what happened that night for all the people that are there so that they can actually get an idea of what happened as well as while I'm doing that, tell them what we've learned, you know, about, you know, the, the cruiser and witness A and bring all that into account. And because that's where I want to start is is there and then branch out from that. Yeah, I think that's smart. That's good. Yeah, because I can't start at UMass because I've never been to Massachusetts investigating this case. And I have to start from, you know, point A, which is where supposedly Mora was last seen. Gotcha. Why did you choose the VFW? Well, uh, we were, I had thought about doing the same uh, event at the uh, lodge down in Haverhill, but I have to say that I, I don't know, I, I wasn't, I didn't really feel welcomed. I felt a negative energy there. So I decided that, you know, when the girls mentioned, let's do an event and I was like, okay, let's do it. But I said, let's do it in Littleton. And, and, the VFW was the first hall that we thought of. It's a little smaller than uh, the Eagles Club or the Elks Club, I mean. And when we spoke to the VFW about what we were doing, they were very interested. They did know about the case, not a lot, but they did know about it. And 
they were especially um, happy to have us on board when they knew that Maura had attended uh, West Point. So that was our choice. Um, and that's and the hall has been donated to us. They donated their time, um, you know, to that to help us out. Uh, everyone that has helped us so far is all donations. We've gotten a bunch of local community businesses to donate stuff. If there was one person that you would want to show up, good or bad, just to show up so you could speak to that you haven't had the opportunity to speak to, who would that be? Well, that's a good question. I have one every like three or four months. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I guess, I guess my, my main one would be one of the two girls um, from Mass. Um, from up here, I'd like to see Jeff Williams. I'd like to talk to that man face to face. How do you think that conversation would go? I think it would be pretty dull on his part. I got a ton of questions I could fire at him sitting here right now. <laughs> You're saying dull because he wouldn't uh, give you straight answers? I don't think he would talk. I don't, th- I don't think he'd say a word. I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that he would act probably more than likely worse than he did with Runner. Um, just because Renner has, was pretty much nice to him. Renner called him a nice guy. I haven't been the same, you know. I, as you guys well know by my blog, I where I'm coming from. What time is this event going down on uh, February 11th? It's from two to eight p.m. And this is an invite for you, Jeff Williams, if you'd like to show up. Do you want to give him like a preview of maybe a, a question or two that you'd ask him? I would say. Where were you going when you were on Swiftwater Road and you passed a vehicle? I think that would be my first question. Okay, so I'll I'll be Jeff Williams. You are you're Jeff Williams? <laughs> yeah, no, I I wasn't in I wasn't in the car that night. You weren't in the vehicle that night, sir. Right. So earlier in the day, when you were put into that cruiser, when did you give up the cruiser that day? And this is me walking away from the conversation. Why are you walking away, Mr. Williams? <laughs> I don't know. You don't have any answers for me, Mr. Williams? <laughs> that's just how I think it would go. Because if you didn't have any answers, you would just say you couldn't answer that question. But by walking away, you're showing me your true colors. That's who I am. That's just what I'd be doing. I'd be following him out the fucking door. We've been very fair. We've uh, uh, cordially invited him. We've given him a preview of what some the the important question would be uh i see no reason to not come if you're prepared you know what the questions are going to be and and you're you know the scenario you're walking into uh open door policy do we have security at this event um i thought you guys were security. <laughs> i believe that uh from what i've heard that because we're we're having a we're having a dilemma about the alcohol um i'm having a dilemma um, being served there. Uh, at first, I thought it was a good idea, but knowing how people can act even after just a couple beers, I don't want to have trouble, you know. But then I was like, well, you know, they say that they have a couple people that they have for security there at the place or whatever. And so I'm like, well, maybe it's not a big deal. But then my other thought was, I don't want to portray this as a bunch of drunks at an event, you know, with, with us talking and people see, you know, us drinking or whatever. 
I don't want this if it's seen down the road to portray that, you know, all these guys got together on the 13th anniversary. It was just a bunch of drinking people. And, you know, they talked a little bit about the case. Right. But now I'm at the point where I've just let it all go and I really don't give a fuck what happens. Anybody who's going to drink so much where they make a, a scene or a fool out of themselves, that's on them. That's not going to make the whole event look bad. It's going to, that mostly is going to be on that person. Yeah. And especially if it is taken care of quickly, which, you know, I mean, I've written up the thing that says when you enter the building, you know, that we ask for you to be respectful um, and we will ask you politely to do so. And if not, we'll ask you to politely leave. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I got a text about a week ago from Greg Overacker, who's a private investigator who we've been talking to uh, about the Brianna Maitland case. He's been on, on this podcast and on the Crawl Space podcast. And about the Brianna Maitland case, he wrote to me something like, this case will leave a mark on your soul. And it got me thinking about you, John, and how this case has been going on for 13 years and you've been here this whole time. And this case has left a mark on your soul. And so I was just wondering if you wanted to share any stories about this case that remind you of that expression um, from the past 13 years. It definitely has, has left a mark on me. Um, I guess it would be because of, because of all the things that I have, I've found out all the different uh, avenues I've been down and things that things that I've learned in this case, not only about the case, but about myself, um, certainly, certainly has left a mark on my soul. And I feel that in some ways it was good. And in some ways it was bad. I've definitely learned to just let stuff go now um, easier than before. Before I was just so involved and just so absorbed by it that I, that I couldn't get over anything. And now I've at least, this has helped me grow as far as, you know, what I see in, in myself and what I see in this case. It's, it's helped me to see it in a better perspective, I guess. And, and whatever. Do you feel like you've come out of it a better person? Well, in some ways, yes. And in some ways, it's made me much more cynical um, because uh, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, there's just been so many lies and, and whatever that have been put forth. And it just, it, I choose to look at everybody in a different way now. Before, I didn't look at everybody in a different way. Now I look at everybody not as a suspect, but just 
just I just look at everybody differently. I don't know, you know. It's changed my perspective of, of people. Because when you look at the case and the people involved, anybody could have had something to do with it when you look at their behavior. That's a tough thing to get through when you first start looking at the case. So I think what what I'm getting from you is that if you can see the worst in everybody in this case, if you can see a dark side to anybody involved in this case, how easy is it for you to go to the supermarket and the person checking you out of the, uh, you know, the, the cashier, you're looking at that person like, I wonder what dark things go on in your head. You know, it's 13 years of consistent dark concepts. I'm impressed by how you came out of it because a lot of people end up getting swallowed up by it. Well, and, and some people probably consider that I was swallowed up by it. Um, I believe that I was swallowed up by it, um, but I but I, I swam out. <laughs> you know, I was lucky to swim out, but it did take over my life. It, you know, I stopped considering, I stopped worrying about my job. I, you know, me and my girlfriend grew apart. We ended up splitting up. Uh, I lost my vehicle. You know, I mean, it, it definitely took a toll on my life, but at the same time, it was a, it was a learning experience beyond anything I could ever say. And someday, if, if I write a book, it, it will be in there about, all that will be in there about how it did. It changed my life. It changed my, you know, my girlfriend's life. I mean, luckily we're still friends, but you know, she, you know, even her, just her, it, the amount of people surrounding me that it has changed as well in the way that I feel about them. And some of those people that I was, you know, friends with back then, uh, they've just gone to the wayside because I realized that, you know, from doing this case that, yeah, they just, I don't know. They just had to go. And you don't have to comment on this. This is just kind of an observation or just a thought to muse upon. But it's an interesting concept to imagine a parallel universe where Mora never went missing and you never got involved in this and where you'd be at that point. I wonder if it would be somewhere better or somewhere worse. And you don't have to. It's just something to kind of roll around. Well, I mean, I'd like to answer it because uh, I, I personally don't know. Um where I would be, um, I have to say that during this case, my my drinking became much worse. You know, I was working the case, but I was drinking to cover up what was happening. Just it was so much bad that I'd just get drunk, you know. And six years ago, I quit drinking. And to me, that was a positive thing, you know, for me that came out of this case. You know, I was out working the case one night, and I was sitting at the bar, and you know, everything was just fucking, I mean, absolutely, my head was ready to explode. And when I walked out, I just said, see you guys later. You know, I'll see you tomorrow. And no, you won't. They haven't seen me for six years. I, you know, they all ask about me. Where's John? Where's John drinking now? Well, John's not drinking now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's one good thing that came out of it. If, if it hadn't happened... You know, would I still be, would my mind have not become so overloaded that I would just be still doing my same thing of just drinking and, you know, not getting drunk, but just going out drinking and living my normal life and have my job and have my truck and have my wife? I don't know. I, I think that it would be a lot different, but I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Do you have any regrets in 13 years, either the way something was handled or 
the way you've come out of it now? Is there something you can look back at and say you shouldn't have done this this way or something like that? My biggest regret is that I handled it the way I did, that I that I let the case, let Mora and her family uh, of people who I'd never met before basically rule my life. It, it grabbed me, it took me over, and the part that I regret is that I didn't have enough common sense back then to, to divide the two, to separate the two, and place me and my life on this side and place them and their life on that on that side and and do it individually but i didn't i didn't it, it was all one and it turned out to be a big mess but you got through it and now you're here and now you're organizing these vigils and you're organizing these events to keep it alive and you know sometimes you have to create chaos in order to create progress well and i think you're exactly right uh there was a lot of chaos created during this whole thing and like i say the thing that's that i that i think came out of it the best is it was a learning experience and of all the things that i'm grateful for is is that me and um my ex are still friends that you know it, it didn't cause that to be you know to be a really negative aspect and we're still great friends and and that's I think what really makes me feel good is that that so. Last time we had you on the podcast, it was in the UMass Cabin episode, which was around October. Morning. How you doing? How are you? Good. We're we're filming a documentary about the Moore Murray case. Uh, she went missing from Haverhill, New Hampshire. Oh. Um, and, uh, What's her name? Maura Murray. No, no, she, she, was the, she was the one that disappeared. Yeah, 12 years ago, actually. I talked to somebody on the phone about that case a few weeks back. And before that, I think it was the Witness A episode, which was uh, last July of 2016. It was a very strong feeling that I could, you know, it felt like I could hear, you know, a call for help. And it, but in my head, it didn't make sense. It's like, I feel that, but that do, it didn't make sense. I looked over my shoulder and I'm like, the police are there, my cell phone doesn't work, and it doesn't even look like a bad accident. So, I, but I, I, you know, I had to think like, should I go back and see if I can help? But like, what would I do? What has been going on in your investigation uh, since the last time we spoke? Well, I've been working a lot behind the scenes with a, with a couple of people from up here um, that have been digging into the the whole stories about the police and everything. We haven't really gained a lot of information. We do know that the police in the local area, and I'm not just saying Haverhill, but Haverhill, Woodsville, Bath, Little, you know, all these towns around were basically very lax in what was going on in their towns. They weren't paying attention and. And I think that's proven pretty much by the Haverhill report um, for 2005, which just, you know, states all the stuff that they had going on. I mean, they had three kids, you know, what was it, three kidnappings and um, domestic assaults and burglaries and crimes against people. So uh, definitely we've been looking into that 
aspect of it very deeply and why that goes on. You know, why can that keep going on if you know what's happening? I've been digging a lot into um, Rick Forcier again. Him and the police, to me, in my book, are at the top of the list. The police, because of the lies and, and, and the inaccuracies and the tree and that stuff just all doesn't make sense. So there's something there. Uh, Rick Forcier, again, you know, there's not a lot out there about him. You know, he doesn't have a criminal record. There's a few certain people that know some things about him, but a couple things are definitive, but nothing that really is going to slap you in the face. I mean, yeah, I, I've been slapped in the face by it because, you know, I mean, I know the guy personally. And, yeah, he's definitely up there high on the list. And I think the reason is because, you know, he stayed in, at first he was home that night and then he didn't hear anything. And then it changes to, no, I was coming home from work in Franconia his story is not told to the police until two and a half months later that he saw the girl running down the road. And that was because he had been running his mouth in the store. I think, yeah, he's definitely, he's definitely uh, right up there at the top of this. Now, I just want to interject because some people might be listening to this episode for the first time, or they, it might be a while since they've heard details in previous episodes. Mora's car was found on the side of the road at that curve. About 100 yards away on the left-hand side was Butch Atwood's house, and then on the right-hand side was Bradley Hill Road where Rick Forcier's house was. Now, where his house was was not where, because some people get this confused, was not where he claims to have seen Mora. He claims to have seen somebody who matched her description. How many miles away from there, and was that around Hummingbird Lane? He stated that he saw a what he believed to be a young female uh, with a with a, a hood, running down the road, approximately in the, in, in the vicinity of Route 116. Now, Route 16, there are two routes 116s off of Route 112. One is Route 116 Benton Road, which goes back down to Bradley Hill, or the other 116 is the one that goes to Easton, and they're about three quarters of a mile apart. Uh, so I'm guessing that he saw, if, if he's stating that this to be truth, that he saw her probably in between the two 116s would be my guess. Uh, that is within very close to Hummingbird Lane, which is where uh, uh, Greg Floyd lived. How long was it after the accident that he came forward and said that? And why was there such a delay? He came forward two and a half months after. When Frank Kelly, the first PI, talked to him very early on, he told Frank Kelly that he was home that night, laying on the couch, sleeping. He did not hear or see a thing. Two and a half months later, when he, the police came to him because Rick had been at the local store and was talking about how he had seen somebody running down the road that night, what he believes was that night. So then the police went and talked to him and after talking to him, they decided that his story was viable. And the New Hampshire police said, state police said that they checked his work records and they know that to be true. Well, being a former police officer, if a guy shows me his work records, which he keeps himself because he's self-employed, and they're written in pencil, it indicates to me that I wouldn't say that that's 100%. And I wouldn't, and especially from a man that doesn't come forward until two and a half months later when 
if he was coming home at the time he says he was, when he pulled into his driveway, he would have noticed all the commotion. He would have seen the lights bouncing off the houses. And you're telling me that he wouldn't have went, huh, I wonder what's going on there. And then it would have reflected in his mind that about three minutes earlier, four minutes earlier, you'd seen a person running down the road. What time was he supposed to come home based on his work records? Approximately eight o'clock. Just before eight o'clock, all three would have been there, fire department, police, and EMS. If it was just after eight o'clock, eight oh eight oh two, I think is when EMS was released. Six minutes later from when they arrived, eight oh two or eight oh three. And how many in your opinion, how many subsequent searches took place for Mora in that area between the time of the accident and when he said that he saw somebody who matched her description two months later? Well, we know that on Thursday was when they first brought the dog to the scene. And that was state police everywhere. The road more than likely was closed. They probably closed the road to do the dog scent so they wouldn't have vehicles going by. The dog scent led from where the Saturn was found to in front of Rick Forcier's house and across the street from Butch Atwood's house. And the only time that Rick Forcier said that he saw somebody who matched her description was to an off-the-cuff comment at the local store. And I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the Swiftwater Stage Shop? Yes. Did anyone talk to him in the meantime? Did, did, did anybody that you know knock on his trailer door and say, do you know what's going on, before he made that comment at Swiftwater Stage Shop? Because what was he just going to say? I don't know what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden it, it occurs to him that, oh, maybe this does it. Maybe he has a brain that doesn't move as fast as some people. But I think that a grown man who is capable of building a home and purchasing property should be able to put these pieces together a little bit quicker. Yes. And that's what I don't. I find very strange is that all this activity, the night that he came home, or if he was sleeping, there's no way that, you know, I sleeping on his couch, whatever. Um, and then the subsequent searches, uh, the search on Thursday. Um, and then after Thursday, I mean, Mr. Murray and his family were all over that fucking place, like flies on shit. So there's no way, you know, that during some of that time that Rick Forcier did not see searching going on and it would have clicked in his mind. I mean, like you said, you know, he's a hunter. He's a tracker. He's a, a taxidermist. He has his own business. He's not stupid. I can't imagine Mora knocking on his trailer door, though, that night, right? So either for if Forcier was home, you know, Mora probably, if she took off running, she, you know, probably ran right by his house and or what he was building and his trailer. Um and if he wasn't home, then he saw her, and then that's weird, as we just pointed out. But I can't really see Mora approaching just a, a, a random trailer right there if she said no to Butch Atwood. And wouldn't go across the street to the, the, the Westmans or the Mayots right right before Rick Forcier's house. Uh, there, there are many options in between that and Rick Forcier's house. Um, and the direction that he saw her, outside, like around Hummingbird Lane— 
was that if she were to leave the car and run past his house and past Butch Atwood's house in that direction, or was it the other direction? That would be the direction, to the east of the accident. To the east of the accident. So with Butch Atwood sitting in his bus, who has stated on numerous occasions, and it's documented, that he couldn't see the accident, but he saw many cars passing back and forth. I do know that it's dark, but where he parks his bus is pretty much like right there on the road, right? Within a few feet. Yes. Yeah, within a few feet. He didn't see anybody running by? Exactly. It, yeah. it would have been, if if the dog scent is correct, and she walked to that point and someone picked her up, then more than likely, if Butch Atwood was in his bus or walking to his bus or standing on his porch, which he said he was also, also did after he, he would have seen exactly what happened. Now, it is a possibility that Mora might have gone to Rick Forcier's house that night only for one reason. And the reason is because the yard was full of playground equipment. There was a slide and there was a trampoline that wasn't taken down for the winter. There was stuff that would indicate possible safety. I'm not going to say that she would, but possibly. If Forcier was not home and he was coming home from a job in Franconia, let's say he's the one who come up around the corner and right in front of Butch Atwood's house is turning to go into his driveway and Moore is walking down and he opens up the door and says, you know, what's going on? You know, tries to help her out in some way. Tries to say, can I help you? Or, you know, whatever. I mean, this is where the dog supposedly lost her scent. So if she didn't go to his door that night, is it possible that she just picked him up? He just picked her up right there and drove not to his house, but drove away. And Butch, and Butch Atwood saw what happened. See where you're going there. I'm going to try to throw a curveball here. I love curveballs. Okay. Why would she be why would she be leaving the scene of the accident? If what Faith is telling us is true, it seems like the person if if the car was trying to back up according to the Marats um and according to Faith says if there was activity around the trunk, it almost seems like whoever was in the vehicle was trying to prepare for something to be picked up or to walk away. So that is why I believe that, you know, if the car wouldn't run and she couldn't get the car going again, there was a plan to, you know, her plan, real quick plan, spontaneous thing was to just, I'm going to grab my, my shit that I can grab and, and walk away. Or as we could go by the, the possible tandem driver that someone came along and, gra- you know, picked her up and it was one of those vehicles that Atwood saw. All of that is plausible if we're taking witness A's account as not credible. Because if witness A is accurate in her timing, then there is really no time frame where Mora wouldn't have been seen walking away from that accident by either witness A, Faith, Butch Atwood. She would have had to have ducked into the woods and waited for things to cool down and then walked away. Right, and she didn't duck into the woods because there was no footprint. The part that I find, of course, the most frustrating is that Faith looks away at the same moment that apparently she disappears. The driver disappears. And then you break it down even further. If she had disappeared and walked away in the direction of Butch Atwood, she passed by him in the moment where he was either not on his porch, (laughs) not in his bus, or looking down at his paperwork or something. What's that called? Perfect timing? I think perfect timing was on somebody else's side, but not Morris.
Our thoughts go out to the Murray family on this 13-year anniversary. Please keep more in your thoughts.